Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee and And let's get get our fix. Today, addicts, we are going to be talking about the sick ripper. And we are drinking a chocolate macadamia nut latte. Kylie is doing her typical iced, and I'm actually drinking it hot today. Just a little bit of hot. So if you're interested in knowing some delicious at-home recipes and some of my favorite products, including this chocolate macadamia nut syrup, head over to our website, crimeaddictspodcast.com, and let's give our shout-outs. And this week, we are shouting out Sharia M, Don K., and Robin B. They have commented, rated, reviewed, and shared our content across all social media platforms. We literally could not do this without your guys' continued support. I know we say it every single week, but it truly means the world to us when we see your guys' interaction. It's just amazing. So for your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please go like, follow, rate, review, and share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or crimeaddictspodcast.com. You'll find there a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations. There's also a beautiful donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper, you can click on our Amazon link and it will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. The process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. William Devin Howell was born on February 11, 1970, to his 40-year-old mother in Hampton, Virginia, as the last of four boys. Two of his brothers were much older, nearing 20 years old, when Howell was born, so they were mostly out of the house by the time he came along. As the last child of older parents, he was indulged and left to roam freely, according to one of the siblings who felt his baby brother was given too much latitude during his teen years. Howell grew up in the Virginia Beach area and was described as outgoing and funny. He was heavy set at 5 foot 9 and 220 pounds. He had long dirty blonde hair, a goatee, and he even had his middle name tattooed on his bicep. He talked about his childhood home as comfortable and supportive, except for the death of his mother who died from cancer when he was just 15. He made his way through high school to graduate in 1988. By the time Howell was out of school, he'd fathered two children with his high school girlfriend. Howell went to live with one of his siblings' family in the early 1990s, but his sister-in-law kicked him out after a few weeks because Howell could not stay out of trouble. Perhaps the lack of consequences from his unrestrictive upbringing led him to push the envelope a little as he grew. His criminal record began with convictions for drugs, along with larceny and burglary in Virginia. He was locked up in Georgia and New Jersey as well. Most of the charges surrounded his drinking and pot smoking habits, along with driving on a suspended license. Howell had burned bridges with family members before moving away from Virginia, but later he continued to write to family while incarcerated and reportedly received prison visits from at least one relative. By the time he approached 30, he was living in Connecticut and had two children to help support. Although he continued to work steadily, his life took on the repetitive melody of unstable relationships, temporary housing, heavy drinking, and using prostitutes. 
In early 2002, at the age of 31, he took a job with Benco Roofing in Torrington, Connecticut. He'd purchased a 1985 Ford Econoline for $400 from his prior girlfriend's mother, and he lived on and off with his current girlfriend, Dory Holcomb. The Ford was in poor shape, with two broken-out windows covered in plywood, but mechanically sound. The van had a sign saying, quote, quality lawn service, call Devin, because he did go by his middle name, and it listed his phone number. It also had enough room in the back to store his belongings, keep the tools from his landscaping job, and bed down. He lost his apartment that winter and lived in the van when he wasn't staying with Dory. Howell asked his boss and Benko's owner if it would be okay to use the company parking lot as a place to park and sleep in his van for a few weeks. They allowed this request. He ended up working at Benko for the next eight months, during which time his fantasies of raping women became an increasingly intrusive part of his life. He was reportedly a good worker with a wonderful personality. On July 31st, 2003, Brenda Torres reported to Weathersfield police that her sister Nilsa Arismendi, who was 33, who lived at a local motel, had not been heard from for seven days. Torres told police her sister was a heroin user and a prostitute and was living in the motel with her boyfriend, Angela Sanchez. Arismendi's boyfriend was a convicted drug dealer and immediately was a suspect in her disappearance, but he was later cleared after passing a polygraph test. Instead, he became a key witness leading investigators to Howell. Sanchez, Torres's boyfriend, told police at the time that he and Arismendi allowed Howell to stay overnight in their motel room and the three would smoke crack together. Sanchez said he last saw Arismendi about 2.30 a.m. on July 25, 2003, getting into Howell's van. On November 28, 2003, a North Carolina sheriff pulled over Howell for a motor vehicle violation while he was driving the blue van in Dare County. Weathersfield police, concerned they were going to lose him, convinced North Carolina authorities to hold Howell until they could get there and serve a warrant for violating probation in Connecticut. On the way back to Connecticut in Weathersfield police car, Howell became curious why two Connecticut police officers had traveled 800 miles for a misdemeanor warrant. Weathersfield detective Robert Deron showed Howell a picture of Nilsa Arismedi. Deron said, Howell appeared shocked and immediately stated, quote, I don't want to speak to you without my attorney present. I want to exercise my right to remain silent. End quote. Meanwhile, police and criminalists searched the van. Blood had soaked through a back cushion, some found to be genetically similar to Ars Mendes. Other blood stains could not be identified, and police theorized it came from another victim. Investigators also found a rock that appeared to have blood on it, tape titled Score Fantasy Girls and six darkly lighted videotapes in the van that showed Howell having bizarre sex with women. The lighting was shadowy, and the videos were shot in a way that the victims' faces were not clearly visible. Police released images of two of the women on the videotapes seeking the public's help in identifying them. We are now going to introduce another character. This is Thomas Rodriguez. He had worked as a confidential informant for Dayron before, he met Howell for the first time in the recreation area at the Cheshire Correctional Institute. He said Howell told him he wanted a speedy trial because, quote, 
He said he beat the fuck out of a girl in the back of his van, broke her nose, and threw her out of the van. He said he has to hurry up and rush the case because it's all circumstantial right now. He doesn't want there to be a body found, end quote. Rodriguez also said that Howe told him, quote, he hated fucking prostitutes, end quote. Rodriguez took notes and turned them over to detectives. At one point, Howell told Rodriguez that he hoped police didn't find Ars Mendy's body because that, quote, would be a big problem for him, end quote. After turning in his reports about Howell, he was transferred to another prison facility. While awaiting trial, Howell was charged with witness tampering, according to court records. The story behind that charge goes like this. One day, when he was returning from court, Howell struck up a conversation with another inmate named Jerry Mortimer. When he found out that Mortimer was in the same prison as Thomas Rodriguez, he asked Mortimer to deliver the following message to Rodriguez. Quote, tell him I am going to kill his family, especially his mother, end quote. To corroborate Mortimer's story, state police talked to Jonathan Mills, a convicted murderer from Guilford, North Carolina, who had been a cellmate of Howell's at the Cheshire Correctional Center. Mills told investigators that Howell told him the story about telling another inmate to pass on his threat to Rodriguez. Mills told police that he told Howell he was, quote, pretty stupid to threaten another inmate. Mills would not sign a statement or agree to testify. Shortly after the trial began in January 2007, Howell pleaded guilty to witness tampering and first-degree manslaughter under the Alford Doctrine, meaning that he did not admit guilt but acknowledged that the state had enough evidence to get a conviction. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison on January 30th, 2007. The reason for the manslaughter conviction was due to Arismati's body not being discovered. At sentencing, Howell insisted that he did not kill Arismati, telling Superior Court judge that the bloodstains were from a physical fight that Arismati had in the van with her boyfriend. Howell later tried to get the plea thrown out, alleging that he only took it because his public defender at the time pressured him into agreeing to it. A few weeks later, a hunter looking for hunting ground found human bones behind the West Farms shopping mall in West Hartford, Connecticut. The area is wooded and marshy and is inaccessible by car, which delayed the investigation and recovery of the victims. Three years later, they were identified as Diane Cusack, Joyvelin Martinez, and Mary Jane Menard. Diane Cusack was 55 years old and a New Britain resident. Police last had contact with her on July 9th, during a landlord-tenant dispute. Her remains were found behind the shopping plaza in 2007, and she was later identified in 2011. Cusack, who had a substance abuse problem, had been out of contact with her family for years and had never been reported missing. Officials identified her through DNA and the public's help. Joy Valen Martinez, Joy, was 23 when she went missing on October 10th, 2003, but was not reported missing until March of 29th in 2004. Suspicion arose when she did not show up for her birthday party. She was last spotted in her hometown of East Hartford, where she lived with her mother. In high school, she had been a track star, and at the time of her disappearance, she was unemployed. Her remains were identified in 2013. Mary Jane Menard a 40-year-old substance abuse counselor from Waterbury, went missing from New Britain in October of 2003. More remains were discovered on April 28, 2015, and they were identified as Nilsa Arismondi, Marilyn Gonzalez, Melanie Ruth Camelini, and Danny Lee Wisnett. Remember 33-year-old Nilsa Arismondi, 
She was the victim Howell was convicted of first-degree manslaughter due to her body not being yet discovered. Howell later explained it got too cold outside to bury the body, so instead he wrapped the corpse in plastic and slept next to it in his van for two weeks, but not before removing her fingerprints and jaw to try to disclose her identity. He also shared that her nickname was, quote, Baby. Marilyn Gonzalez was a 26-year-old woman and a mother of two children. She went missing in 2003 after she left her home in Waterbury. Melanie Ruth Camelini was a 29-year-old and a mother of two from Seymour. She went missing on January 1st, 2003. She had recently been living in Waterbury and was last seen in that area with two men. Camelini was known to have a substance abuse problem and would regularly disappear for long periods of time. Once Camelini was in his creeper van, Howell duct taped her hands together, drove her to Torrington, and parked, then raped and killed Camelini there. Howell said he tried to bury Camelini's body in what Torrington locals call Little Woodstock, a section of the Pognut State Forest near Burr Pond State Park, but the ground was frozen. Danny Lee Wisnett, aka Janice Roberts, was a 44-year-old transgender woman from New Britain and was last seen on June 18, 2003, when she was getting into Howell's blue van at a stop and shop in Wethersfield. She was reported missing on June 24th. Howell later told an informant that he tried to engage Roberts in a sexual act by getting a blowjob, but then realized that she was transgender when he pulled off her wig, so Howell just strangled her. Drug use and prostitution is a common thread amongst most of these victims, based on their histories. Also, they were all murdered in 2003. Howell called this spot behind the strip mall his garden, and it contained the remains of all seven of his victims, though it took police multiple searches to find them all. Howell also called his temporary home on wheels his murder mobile. A.K.A. the creeper van. <laughs> all right, stupid. Before police knew Howell committed the murders, they offered a $150,000 reward to find the persons responsible. This amount has also become the largest reward in the state's history for a criminal investigation. The manhunt for the criminal responsible for the deaths of six people ended once they realized their perp was already in jail. Howell was eight years into a 15-year prison term at Garner Correctional Institute in Newton, Connecticut, and was due to get out in 2019. That is until he started running his mouth to his cellmate about the rape and murderous acts he committed. Of course, his cellmate ratted him out, which led to six missing person cases resulting in murder to be solved. Howell also told a cellmate that there was a monster inside of him and described himself as, quote, a sick ripper which led to Howell being referred to as the Sick Ripper by some media outlets. During Howell's talks with his cellmates, he claimed that he said if he hadn't been caught, quote, he was going to go cross-country and kill others, end quote. On November 17, 2017, Howell was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences after pleading guilty to the murders of Cusack, Martinez, Menard, Gonzalez, Camelini, and Winsnit. As some of us may know, a life sentence doesn't actually mean life in prison. So in Connecticut, for example, it means 60 years in prison, meaning that he was sentenced to 360 years in prison total, which he is currently serving at the Cheshire Correctional Institute as inmate number 305917. 
He cried and apologized to the families of the victims during sentencing, calling his actions, quote, monstrous, cowardly, and selfish. He told the court that he deserved the death penalty, which was abolished in the Connecticut Supreme Court in 2015. Quote, I can't even imagine how many people didn't get hurt because Mr. Howell was convicted of manslaughter in 2005, end quote. This was from Weathersfield Police Chief James Cetrin, and he said, After it was announced that the skeletal remains of Nilsa Arismondi, whom he had been convicted of killing, was found in the same area as the other seven bodies. In an interview with the Daily Beast, 19-year-old Juliana Holcomb said she never thought Howell, her mother's ex-boyfriend, could have done this. Quote, he has long hair and in his mugshot, he looks angry, Holcomb said. Quote, but he was a kind-hearted giant. He was so nice. He and my mom got along well together. End quote. Howell used to stay with Juliana's mother, Dorothy, when he was in Connecticut. The van seized by police was registered in her name. Quote, none of us really believe he did that, Holcomb told the Daily Beast about the death of Arismondi, which Howell was convicted of. Quote, he never put a hand on my mom or anything, end quote. She said her mother left Howell because he didn't have money and she was also poor, but police records and other family members tell a different story. While Howell was being investigated in Arismondi's death, police had an active arrest warrant for him on domestic violence charges alleging he hit Dorothy Holcomb, who died in 2012, not at his hand. Dorothy's sister, Cheyenne Hackett, told the Daily Beast something was, quote, fishy about Howell. On behalf of my family, I'm so happy he did not kill my sister, that my sister was not one of his victims, end quote. I'm going to read to you a CBS News article from November 17, 2017. New Britain, Connecticut. An East Coast drifter who killed seven people in Connecticut in 2003 and drove a van he called the Murdermobile was sentenced Friday to life in prison. A state judge handed down six consecutive life sentences to William Devin Howell during an emotional hearing where victims' relatives spoke about how the killings devastated their lives. Howell pleaded guilty to murder charges in September. He stripped away the youth from us and made me and my brothers orphans, said Tiffany Menard, daughter of victim Mary Jane Menard. She called Howell a monster and she said she tried to kill herself two times after her mother disappeared. Howell is believed to be the most prolific serial killer in Connecticut history, not counting mass shooters. The seven killings topped the Connecticut body count of serial killer Michael Ross, who killed six women in eastern Connecticut and two in New York and was executed in 2005. The 47-year-old Howell from Hampton, Virginia, cried and apologized to the victim's families during the hearing, saying he deserved the death penalty and his acts were monstrous, cowardly, and selfish. The state Supreme Court abolished Connecticut's death penalty in 2015. I know what awaits me, a slow, painful death in prison, said Howell, who talked about his diabetes and possibly limb amputation and organ failure in the future. I hope that provides some comfort to each of the families, he said. The bodies of all seven of Howell's victims were found buried in a wooded area behind a strip mall in New Britain, about 15 miles southwest of Hartford. Three bodies were found in 2007, and the other remains were discovered in 2015 when authorities went back to the site. 
All seven victims disappeared in 2003 when Howell was mowing lawns and working other odd jobs. They were identified as Mary Jane Menard, 40, of New Britain, Joy Valen Martinez, 24, of East Hartford, Diane Cusack, 53, of New Britain, Melanie Ruth Camellini, 29, of Seymour, Marilyn Gonzalez, 26, of Waterbury, Danny Lee Wisnat, 44, of New Britain, and Nilsa Arismendi, 33, of Wethersfield. Howell was arrested in May 2005 in Hampton, Virginia, in connection with Arismendi's death, and later pleaded guilty to manslaughter. He sexually assaulted three of the women and kept one of the bodies in his van for two weeks, sleeping next to the body and calling the victim his, quote, baby, according to an arrest warrant affidavit. Howell told a cellmate there was a monster inside him and described himself as a, quote, sick ripper, according to the warrant. He also told the fellow inmate he kept one of the woman's bodies wrapped up in his van because it was too cold outside to bury her, the warrant said. He said he cut off the tips of her fingers, dismantled her bottom jaw, and disposed of the body parts in Virginia, the document said. Authorities said they found blood in the van that matched the blood of one of the victims, along with videotapes of Howell having sex with women. Police said a main connection among most of the victims was their use of drugs. Howell called the burial site his, quote, garden, and said the victims should have known they were going to die because of the lifestyles they led, the warrant said. I just want to make a quick comment about the fact that just because these victims were prostitutes and or drug abusers does not minimize the crimes, and they still do not deserve the fate that they endured. Absolutely not. They are still human beings and deserve to be treated as such, not like garbage or used or tossed away or any of those things. And I understand that that's how he feels, but I completely disagree. Who is he to make that decision? Right. Who died and made him boss? Nobody. Yeah. (laughs) Far from it, homeboy. Mm -hmm. Far from it. I just wanted to throw that out there because there is like a heavy thought process for him that this is what they had coming to them because they were prostitutes, so fuck them. But yeah, so, and then in we his do mind, not feel that way. <laughs> in his mind, it's making the, like you said, it, it just diminished his act. Like, he he doesn't think that it was that big of a deal because of the lifestyle that they led. Right. Like, the, the, they chose their fate. He was just acting it out for them. Stupid. Yeah. Not accurate. Not and true. We, yeah, we do not agree with that by any means. Yeah. Not um, at all. Okay, so we did kind of get through the facts and the circumstances surrounding the case. So, of course, I do have a couple of questions to pose for you. (laughs) Um, And I can't wait to hear what you think about this first one. So, number one, what is the scariest part of William Devin Howell for you? I think the one thing that stood out the most was the fact that he was not bothered having to stay with that body for two weeks in his van. Yeah, that is a little freaky. It makes my skin crawl a little bit. Yeah, I feel, you know, it's one thing to commit the murder. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to, you know, think about and try to take off any fingerprints or anything to trace them back to figuring out who that person is. Yeah, culpability. But then it's another thing to do all of that and then call this corpse your baby and keep it where you're living like that, that to me, I think is a whole nother level of like psychopathic mm-hmm. 
And I'm honestly, I'm going to tell you, I'm surprised that he didn't have necrophiliac behaviors. That's true, huh? Because he had the body, he had the ability, what he wanted to get out of it, he technically could still have gotten it if he wanted to, uh, but that was not reported, it wasn't admitted. I know he spoke on and off with a reporter pretty heavily, and admitted everything to her and that never came up there was never any even question of it which i would be surprised of yeah well my thinking too is like we've talked about it before i think that type of behavior is a lot of control right right but he also he raped he was proud to say that he raped women so i'm wondering if he likes the fight Right. He doesn't want to do it to, sorry, this is like very intense, but like he doesn't want to do it to just a still cold body. Right. He wants that fight. Mm-hmm. He wants to show more control and mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's like maybe another Absolutely. level of control. Mm-hmm. It's very Well, weird. and he talked a lot about how like in all of his interviews and stuff like that, if you're watching them or reading news articles or reading the letters that he wrote to this uh, reporter. She was an attorney. And then actually when she got his case, she wrote his book and it was so successful. She actually stopped working in law enforcement to continue writing true crime novels. But um, through all of that, he was mostly saying that he did not enjoy the murders. Uh, He was very much just doing that to cover his tracks and that what he, like his motive was, it was sexual in nature. He wanted, mm-hmm. and he had these rape fantasies. He wanted to carry them out, but he knew that they couldn't continue living. So he chose prostitutes because he had already been in that game for a while because mm-hmm. we'll post a picture of him, but you're going to see why <laughs> um, he is not attractive by any means. And, um, you know, so he did go and purchase prostitutes and like we had talked about that he went and he had tried to purchase a blowjob from Janice Roberts and then discovered it was a male. So, I mean, he was really, he wasn't even planning on killing that victim. He was yeah. literally, I think he went to like, just, that you know, the corner like was going to go grab a blowjob real quick, get back to work, whatever. And then he found out that it was a male. But and... I mean, like, come on. At that point, you didn't do anything wrong. Technically, you could have just left. You mm-hmm. didn't have to kill her. Right. You know, mm-hmm. like so really did you really not enjoy the kill like something like that makes me kind of question that a little bit i think he was so disgusted because he was just so far the opposite in agreeing to any of that type of a lifestyle you know what i mean like he just didn't agree with not being heterosexual he didn't agree with the transgender maybe lgbtq just Mm -hmm. lifestyle and entirely Mm -hmm. you know and so the fact that he was, he was now like caught in the middle of yeah, it, basically. caught in the middle. He, like, could not have that reputation going back out yeah. to the fact that... I mean, because this is someplace he frequented, you know, was getting prostitutes. So mm-hmm. he couldn't have that. In my opinion, I think he just probably couldn't have that yeah. get back out that he got a blowjob from a man. In that his makes opinion. sense. Um, so that's really rough. I think that going back to the scariest part of it, uh, just of him as a whole, um, there's a few things that I think all kind of stick out in my opinion um just the fact that he was willing to commit the sexual assaults like you know it's one thing to have the fantasy it's another to carry it out with a partner who is not willing um so that's a whole thing in itself the sexual acts i mean that's a pretty big step in itself then of course that escalates to murder that's concerning and then this has got to be one of the biggest things was that the fact that he committed so many rapes and murders in such a short time frame I mean, this was all happened in the year of 2003. It was less than a year that it occurred before he was caught and sentenced to prison for the manslaughter 
And I mean, he even admitted that he was not planning on stopping and was actually planning on continuing and escalating to taking it out of the area and traveling across the country. And he was not going to stop until he got caught. So that's scary, but it's crazy that he went from zero to seven in one year. I mean, that's a lot. what happened? What triggered mm-hmm. something happened? Mm-hmm. You know, and we'll see. Life. Yeah, you have these rape fantasies. Why now are you choosing to mm-hmm. carry it out? Like it makes me wonder. Like, I mean, we said that he had like on and on again, off again relationships that weren't very stable, and obviously not considering he was living in his van. You know, they weren't. He wasn't living at their homes full time or anything like mm-hmm. that. Even though he was in need, mm-hmm. you know, it just goes to show all of his money that he worked for and doing odd jobs and, you know, at the roofing company, doing landscaping and stuff. It goes to show that all that money went towards prostitutes and drugs. All of that money was put to not good use because he had no bills. I mean, that van was paid off. He didn't have a home. He didn't have any bills like any other rest of us do. It's just like food and gas, basically. Mm -hmm. Food, gas, prostitutes, and drugs. That's all he Mm -hmm. really cared about, which is crazy because it makes you wonder how much... He had kids, too. Mm-hmm. You know? That he was supposedly supporting. We yeah. don't know what that looks like. Um, but not having a good job, the court wouldn't necessarily order that he has to pay a whole bunch. I don't know if there was, you know... Child support involved. Yeah, I don't anything. know if that was. But it's just crazy, the fact that he wasn't even really involved in his kid's life too much. I mean, they lived in Virginia. He lived in Connecticut. It's not like he traveled back and saw them all the time. Yeah. He had them when he was in high school. You know, he's not with their mother anymore. It just shows instability like heavily. And what he relied on on a daily basis was drugs and prostitution. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. just insane to me. And then to just turn around and be like, okay, but all these people that I've been paying for their services, I'm going to also turn around and go ahead and kill them. Like, that's just, I don't know. A part of me, like, I, I keep going back to what you said, where he stated that he never enjoyed the kill, but I don't know. It's like, but if you've been doing, you've been in this prostitution world for a while, you got bored. Yeah. He wasn't you willing to give up the rape. And he wanted to rape. Yeah. So he escalated and mm-hmm. that, that, seems to be what was this what was the change he got bored with right. what was going on he didn't like the cut and dry okay i pay you we do it mm-hmm. we're done right and another thing like on off of what you're saying now is what's really crazy to think about of you saying he got bored like not only did he escalate to raping but he also escalated to murdering all at the same time mm-hmm. so he decided okay And he even says, like, I remember the day that I decided I was going to carry out my rape fantasies and the next prostitute that I paid for was going to die. So he made a conscious decision. And what's crazy to me about that is that prostitutes, a lot of the time, don't go to law enforcement Mm -hmm. because they don't, A, think that they can help. B, they know that they're not necessarily doing the most upstanding business, you know, Mm -hmm. there's like a whole bunch of things against that. So of course the prostitute, and like, if you go to somebody, they may think like, oh, well, you're a prostitute. Like, how would you know the difference or something, you know, like they have, there's definitely like a stigma there. Right. Mm -hmm. So why would you not just rape and rape prostitutes? I mean, you don't have to kill them. You don't have to rape them either. I'm not condoning that either. But why did you have to escalate Escalate to raping and murdering at the same time? Like he could have tried to rape. jump like two boxes up. And not, he didn't even try to rape and get away with it. It's not like he was like almost caught. So he decided, okay, now I have to kill to try to cover my tracks. He just decided I'm going to rape. I'm going to do it now. And that means I have to kill. I mean, that's crazy to me. It is. And then obviously he didn't like concealing 
the identity like he did to Ariz Mendy because he didn't do that to any other victim. And he even said like, yeah, I had to stop because I just really couldn't take it anymore. Like that was not enjoyable to me to mutilate a body. So mm-hmm. he didn't do it again. And none of the other victims had any signs of that. Like their teeth weren't pulled out or anything like that. He just basically decided, well, if they find one, they're going to find them all. They're going to be able to identify him one way or the other anyway. So, so. he basically prepped himself prior right. to that. Prior to Nosa, he literally researched, figured out how he's going to do it, where he's going to do it, what he's going to do after. And he experimented with He that. made a conscious decision. Conscious decision. 100%. Homeboy was in his right mind. Yeah. And the fact that his right mind is that wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. And I mean, that's a lot of wrong decisions. That's, so that's a many, lot. Man. I mean, even before committing the act, like deciding that you're going to is mm-hmm. wrong. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just, man, that's hard to get on board with. But there's, I mean, there's a lot of scary parts about Howl that we can discuss. I think those were some of the major ones for me. Yeah. But he is, he is a stereotypical sex offender. I mean, they are going to manipulate and take advantage of any situation that they possibly can. They're going to twist it to whatever benefits them, however they can do that. And then they're going to find a way to get what they need, which in his situation was to fulfill the fantasy of rape. And then they're going to turn around and be super, super nice to the rest of the public and put on this persona that they're great people. And honestly... Outside of the rape, they probably are normal human beings that make mistakes like the rest of us. But it's just hard to get around those undoable acts. I mean, once you make that decision, like he made the conscious decision. We keep saying that. He made the conscious decision to rape somebody and you can't go back from that. And then not only just one time, but a second time, a third time, a fourth time, Mm -hmm. a fifth time, Mm -hmm. a sixth time. Mm -hmm. Like, yep. At and then just point, straight up murder on the yeah, side. Yeah, it's, it's just beyond at that point. Yeah. Okay, I do have one more question for you. Okay. How would you feel to be his children and find out what your father is capable of? Ooh, you flipped the switch on this one. <laughs> Typically, you ask me how it would be to be the parent. Yes. So now, okay. So now as a child, um, I would be scared. And I think a huge part too would, because I'm not too sure how you know connected they were with the with him, mm-hmm. but I can only imagine like they probably know enough of like his name. Maybe he sent a few things to them. They know of him, I'm sure, and so to find out that you know, oh my gosh, my dad is was arrested. He's in prison, and then to find that they connected other bodies to him and he's not really showing a lot of remorse. It's kind of like, they're probably questioning like, who is this guy? Right. You know, like, do I really know who this person is? Right. And shoot, if I was that child, I would probably start to question a lot of like what I'm doing in my life. I was going to say it might answer some questions because it's like, answer some questions or raise awareness as to like oh my gosh like why am I thinking this way or why am I drawn to this type of thing do you know what I'm saying absolutely it's it's kind of scary when you think about it but I feel for those kids like my heart goes out to them because or all of the kids whose parents are criminals because honestly like that is 
a hard pill to swallow. And then when you're old enough to try to like really think about it, it's kind of crazy. Well, and it, I mean, it definitely poses the question of nature versus nurture, right? So with that being said, what would your answer be on the debate to nature versus nurture in this particular case? Honestly, I a part of me kind of goes back and forth. Okay, so hear me out. Okay. Nature, we, we talked about this before. It's like your genetics, what your, basically it's your personality traits, right? Right. We have no history here stating that his parents were abusive. Narcissistic shitheads? No, we don't have any information. <laughs> <laughs> or even his siblings. Like even his right. siblings had said it. So then I kind of turned to nurture because his siblings did state because he was youngest of a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. he had siblings, but they were there's a huge gap. And, and so his parents, parents mm-hmm. yeah, older parents, mm-hmm. youngest child, mm-hmm. they've pulled back on the reins a lot Mm -hmm. you know they didn't have a lot of maybe they weren't strict Mm -hmm. they just kind of let him do what he wanted to do Mm -hmm. and so then I'm starting to think maybe a little bit of nurture because that's more of like your upbringing your life experiences like that kind of determines your behavior compared to what your genetic state yeah I mean in so like it's not like he had technically an abusive upbringing but it's more of the looseness that he had growing up like looseness being like he had like it seemed like he didn't have any rules like his parents didn't really provide rules for him or any type of boundaries Mm -hmm. okay so it sounds to me like you're leaning more towards nurture yeah more that i say that (laughs) so you just talked yourself straight into the nurture (laughs) side of the debate i would have to agree um nurture for sure for me uh because it was i think 100 percent on how he was raised because exactly what you just said like he had he had three other siblings. None of them were reportedly ma- mass serial murders. <laughs> um, his parents were a lot older. He had a lot of leniency growing up. And I mean, one thing that we do see here is that he did get through high school and he was, he fathered two children. So that means he had to be with somebody for an extended period of time yeah. in order to have two children, you know? So, and again, we said he does appear, you know, kind of normal-ish on the outside, you know, and he can get along. He has, with people, he has a good personality. He's very kind. He's appropriate. He's polite. He was able to maintain a job. Mm-hmm. He had, you know, friends, like people were inviting him into their hotel room to do drugs together. Like, you don't do that for somebody that you think is creepy or sketchy yeah, or scary you I mean, off the bat. And, and yeah you know what as women we've kind of always felt that vibe right if you feel like you're unsafe around somebody like you kind of feel it you know right. and obviously he did not give off that vibe right yeah so i mean he was you know he was seemingly an okay person on the outside as far as personality goes but the fact that he wasn't able to let this fantasy go and that he made that decision to do what he did obviously that's not that's not the right thing to do. Um, but for me, that does go to the nurture side because there was no history that would substantiate the nature side, in my opinion. But, I mean, if somebody out there disagrees and thinks this is more nature, like, I'd love to hear your opinion as to why and, like, where, like, what substantiates that for you. Okay, did you have anything else that you wanted to add to any of those questions? I guess I kind of gave you three. So let me recap them. So one, what is the scariest part of William Devin Howell for you? Two, how do you feel? Two, how would you feel to be his children and find out what your father is capable of? And three, is this nature or nurture? 
I think I've answered everything uh, to my knowledge as of now, but it does kind of linger, you know, even after we conversate. So if yeah, I, do, I can't sleep at night. <laughs> I know. It's like going into this and then I'm, I'm sitting here with like my mouth open, like looking up. I'm like, yeah. Oh my gosh. What if? Yes. <laughs> but if I do come up with anything, I will drop it into our Facebook page where we have our discussion questions. And so I will make sure to add that in there. Yeah. So we'll post this discussion question post for this week up on the Facebook page. Go to Crimatics Pod on our Facebook group page, like, follow, share, you know, all the good goodies. <laughs> um, and then and scroll down to where it says that it's discussion questions for episode eight. We will pose these three questions again. Number one, what is the scariest part of William Devin Howell for you? Number two, how would you feel to be his children and find out what your father is capable of? And number three, is, is this nature or nurture? And we will include some pictures. Yes, I have a picture that I cannot wait to share with you guys. You guys, his van is like legit creeper van. Like nowadays, if you see that van on the road, you're like, that's a creeper van. Yes. So we will straight up up. creeper van. Like I did not know what a Ford Econoline was. But then when I looked it up and I Googled it, I was like, oh, that's what that is. I thought it was just a Ford creeper van. (laughs) Okay. But then you got to knock out the windows, put some plywood up on there. Oh my gosh. Spray paint some shit on the side. Yeah. Saying, call Devin. It's Just like nasty. creeper times 10. Oh my yeah. goodness. So we'll post a picture of that on the with, along with the discussion questions. And then also post the picture of him as well so you can get a visual of what we're talking about. And speaking of his van, <laughs> can we talk about the fact that he named it his murder mobile? <laughs> oh You're God. so smart, dude. Biggest eye roll ever. So let's go over the things that he... Because he literally... He is this proud is very, of what he's done. It's very common that like the media or police investigators or whatever will try to title a murderer so that they're able to link all of the murders to one person. And, and since they don't have easier. a name, yeah. they they give them a title, right? And then that's like what the media refers to them as or whatever. Sometimes that draws people out, whatever. There's all these reasons for that, right? He didn't have one. He gave it to himself. <laughs> so he named his van. He named himself. himself. He mm-hmm. named where he buried the bodies. Mm-hmm. And he also named one of the victims. His first victim. So just a recap of all that. <laughs> he titled himself the Sick Ripper. <laughs> he titled his first victim that he slept next to for two weeks wrapped in plastic, Baby. Aww, because that's so original. Such a smart name. Yeah, that's so original. Okay, and then... He named his creeper van a murder mobile, and he also named his burial grounds his garden. That's really creepy. I don't like the garden one. That just really freaks me out. It's like you're not growing anything on this land. That's what a garden is. Yeah. There's not freaking tulips blossoming out of these bones that you just buried under the ground. And this, like, they weren't buried very far down because it was a swamp. So literally, he was like digging, digging, hit water. Okay, I guess the body goes here because what's he going to do? Dig out water? Gosh. I'm so sure. That's a garden. And he had to hurry up and turn around because this is all within a span of a year. Let's remember that. Yeah, he don't have time. It wasn't like five years in between each one where he was able to like check it and make sure that it's not seeing anything. Yeah, he had no time to be creative at all. No. 
all of this, a lot of this came to light when he was in prison. So it makes me wonder if he came up with all that in all his free time. He did. Or if sure. this was something that he thought about, you know, when we said he made the conscious decision, did he say, I'm going to rape these people. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to call my van a murder mobile. I'm going to like, he could have had this all planned out to a <laughs> T. Who knows, man? Who knows? Anyways, and with that, we will wrap up this week's episode on the sick ripper who isn't ripping anything sick other than those doughboys. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and and stay stay caffeinated. caffeinated.